welcome, welcome to Freaked Out with your co-hosts, Liz and Landon. What's up, everybody? Today, we are covering the Highway of Tears. This will be the second episode we cover, and we will be covering a few more in the new year. There are so many cases to cover here, guys, and I just wanted to make sure we cover as many as possible. I honestly feel like we owe it to the indigenous people of our country and around the world, to be honest. It's really messed up on how many crimes are committed and so very little justice, or even care for that matter. I will keep on sharing these case details. And by the way, we noticed a huge increase in listeners over the podcast the last month, which is fantastic. We went up by like 70% and we can't wait to keep going. And it's because of you guys. Just saying. Absolutely. Next week, we will be covering the case of Simon Monajak. The last time we covered the case of Brittany Murphy, we discovered something about the situation and we are going to get his side of the story. Hopefully he can explain it a little bit to us. Yes, uh, he wants to talk about the house itself, so should be interesting. I definitely can't wait. Guys, if you want to be able to listen to that episode, you will have to be subscribed to our podcast on the patron side. If you are having issues downloading it or finding it, join our Facebook group called Freaked Out Podcast. It is the same logo over there as it is here, and that is on Facebook, guys. We'll give you step-by-step how to subscribe to that. I know it can be confusing for some people. We also want to give you guys an update on a case that Liz and I covered in the past, so make sure to listen right to the end to hear all about it. Yeah, and if you guys are like me and don't understand technology as much as I do, it's a good way to get some more help. So let's give a shout out to our new patrons. I am so glad to say we've grown so much more in the patron side of things as well, which is fantastic news. And I want to give it up to our new top members. So let's give a shout out to Brandy Olson, Sweens8108, Edith Seco, Sesweet Pie, So thank you guys. You are the reason we are here every week. So thank you for being part of our podcast family. The first case we are going to be covering today is one that we already have the information about, but the story isn't accurate. A Corrine Thomas. She was pregnant and just days from giving birth. Thomas was struck and killed by Richard Redcop's truck as she was hitchhiking to her home on Saturday July 3rd, 1976. Both mother and baby died. No attempt was made to even save the baby. Thomas was indigenous and Redicup was white. Numerous witnesses reported seeing Redicup swerve to hit Thomas. Witnesses were under the age of 16 and they were also taken to the police custody where after three hours of unsupervised interrogations, they were coerced by the police to lie and say that Thomas was playing chicken with uh, Ruddicup's truck. Coroner Eric Turner was satisfied that the death happened by accident, but he later retracted his testimony after it was made public that he was let off with a lesser charge after the drunken hit-and-run death of an indigenous man, which he was responsible for 10 years prior. Eric Turner also provised over an inquest two years before in the death of Larry Thomas, who was killed by a vehicle operated by Redcop's younger brother, Stanley Redcop, on the same road where Corrine was killed. 
During a public formal inquiry, witnesses confirmed that Red Cop's truck actually swerved to hit Thomas. Faye Helen Hogan, who was Red Cop's companion at the time of Thomas's death, died within two years of Thomas's death as well. Despite the inquiry, the Crown did not proceed with charges. In June 1977, Thomas's father proceeded with criminal negligence charges against Richard Redcock. The charges were dismissed due to insufficient evidence. What does Kareen have to tell us about this case? Well, she was the pretty angry spirit I spoke to today. One who was very strong along the highway with her baby daughter who didn't even get to live her life. Corrine wants me to show you all her side of the story. So she shows me she was walking along the highway. Stupidly, she knew it. And it was definitely a bad time, and she knew it wasn't the best situation. She shows me that she was smarter than most women. She didn't travel or hitch often, but she kept to herself. She shows me she was not interested in getting picked up by just anyone, and from the sounds of it, she tried to push past the pain. She shows me she thinks she was in active labor or something along those lines. Either way, she was in major pain and cramping, and she wanted someone to help her get to the hospital. She shows me she stepped out onto the highway a little bit, and from what she shows me, she stepped maybe two steps into the road. She waved her hand in the air back and forth whenever she seen a car coming, as if to inform them basically that coming oncoming traffic that she was in distress. She shows me that when the car's light, the car lights would come closer, she would hurry back to the side of the road. And so she basically wasn't really in the way. And well, she did that a few times. People obviously ignored her. And then here comes this jackass, whom, by the way, I'm not convinced he wasn't drinking or drunk and mad as hell. I feel like his rage inside him like I can feel it so strong and I feel like he and the old lady got into a fight in fact she also steps forward with Corrine which is wild but kind of cool at the same time so she tried to hitchhike what happened next well she shows me she went back on the side of the road and she seen this man speeding up she said she was kind of pissed off looking but to be honest she was in pain and pregnant and she was very uncomfortable and she said as if it was like he couldn't help himself, he sped up and hit her hard. He swerved to hit her. He didn't care. I feel like he did it on purpose. He maybe wasn't necessarily a racist, but I feel like he had an issue with women in general. She shows me that he knew she was pregnant and it was very clear and abundant that she was. And she said that he didn't care. He wanted to hurt her the only way he was hurting and didn't really care about her or anything like that. And sadly, I don't feel like this is the only person he ran over with his car before. I know his brother hit somebody previously, but I also feel like he hit a few people as well. I feel like he did it out of rage too. And of course, she didn't get justice and he felt like no remorse. He never even did after the actual situation took place and basically said nothing during his trial and got away with it. Of course he did. That's awful. I can't imagine how her partner was feeling about having the baby and the mom all gone in a matter of seconds. Pretty much. She just wanted her story explained and she said she was happy in her life and she was working hard to get things she needed for her baby and she worked almost all the way up to the end of her pregnancy as well. 
All she wanted was to get home to her family. This man, by the way, has since passed on from the sounds of it. But before he died, she haunted him and his wife. I know his wife died two years after the incident, but she was also a victim of his. And no, he didn't kill her in the way he had killed Corrine, but he was a very abusive man and she wished she died every single day. She and Corrine are actually with each other today and she was also very suspicious of her husband's motives with this. She knew that the state he was in was not good and she regrets not speaking up about this a little bit more when she was alive. The next three women were all victims of the serial killer Edward Dennis Isaac. Jean Mary Kovacs' nude body was found in a watery ditch 40 kilometers east of Prince George on the 11th of October 1981. Police said she died from a 22 caliber bullet wound to her head. Autopsy reports show she had four gunshot wounds to the head. She was last seen alive at about 1.30 a.m. on the 10th of October, 1981. At the intersection of Old Caribou Highway and Highway 16 East, the First Nations woman was found by a man gathering firewood near Pruden Lake. Less than a month later, Roswitha Fashabler was reported missing at 6.45 p.m. on November 14, 1981. She last talked to a friend at 2 a.m. that morning. Her body was found in a wooded area near Prince George at 9.25 a.m. on the 21st of November 1981. Edward Isaac had picked her up hitchhiking and claimed he had killed her to see what it was like. Her body had been mangled and mutilated and she died from a single stab wound to the heart. Her body had been stripped naked stabbed and slashed before being dumped. Nina Marie Joseph was found nine months later. Nina, her nude body, was found on the 16th of August in 1982 in Freeman Park with a cord from her jacket around her neck. Her body had been stripped naked, stabbed and slashed before being dumped as well. He had the same MO for all three of these ladies. Pretty much. There is a lot to say here. So I didn't look too much into his story, but from the sounds of this guy, he had an excuse for everything. These three women were not his only victims. He also tortured some women who were homeless, druggies, runaways. These were the first women he was caught killing. And the only one that is coming up to speak to me at this time is Jean. I believe she was the most aware of what was going on. And from what she shows me, he liked to play with his prey and he would make them beg for their lives. He would chase them. She shows me she told him that she wasn't a dog, and if he wanted to chase her, she wasn't going to run for his little games. She knew in the back of her mind that he was going to kill her anyways, so why bother? She said that she had seen it in his eyes. She knew that the darkness in his eyes was basically him being soulless. She felt it from the moment she met him, and from what she shows me, he was not at all kind to her, but nosy. He did make sure to offer some food and something to drink, and I feel like that made her feel a little uneasy. She shows me that her door didn't unlock. She knew that only after she got into the car, 
So sad. She just wanted us to know that her death is pretty slow. He made sure to take his time. He even stayed until the end. She shows me she made some sort of statement to him like, I don't trust you. You are evil. Go to hell. And she shows me she was pretty intuitive. She said that there were at least 15 people who he killed and a lot of animals and rape victims as well. The next one has been a highly anticipated one, the Jack family. The offer was too good to be true. On Tuesday, August 1st, 1989, Ronnie Jack left the first lighter pub in Prince George, British Columbia, feeling hopeful. At 26 years old, Ronnie had been out of work due to a back injury, and the Jack family had been living on welfare. Someone in the bar that night offered to help. The man told Ronnie about a job opportunity for him and his wife, Doreen, at the lodging camp at the ranch in Klutzel's Lake area. About 40 kilometers west of Prince George, Ronnie was offered a job bucking logs, and Doreen was offered a position as a cook's helper in the camp kitchen. The man told Ronnie the camp even had a daycare for the couple's two sons, Russell, who was nine, and Ryan, who was four. The Jacks didn't have a car, so the man offered to drive them up to the job site that night. At 11.16 p.m., Ronnie called his brother and told him about the camp job. Two hours later, he called his parents in Burns Lake, B.C., Ronnie said the family would be at the site for 10 to 14 days and would be home before school began again. The man waited for Ronnie, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan to pack their belongings. And at 1.21 a.m. on August 2nd, 1989, all four members of the Jack family were seen leaving their home at 2116 Strathcona Avenue and piling into this man's four-wheel drive, dark-colored pickup truck. They were never seen again. The family was officially reported missing on August 25, 1989. Their disappearance is the first and only of its kind in Canadian history. Nearly seven years later, the most significant tip about the Jack family's disappearance came early on a Sunday morning in January. On January 28, 1996, at 8.33 a.m., a man in Stony Creek, B.C., called Vanderhoof Police with a brief message. The Jack family are buried at the south end of the ranch. It was over in 10 seconds. The caller had hung up before the dispatch could ask any questions. Investigators published several appeals in local newspapers asking the person to call again and planned to release the recording of the caller's voice if they didn't. In March of 1996, the voice recording was analyzed by the University of British Columbia. Although police were eventually able to trace the call from a house in Vanderhoof, where a house party had taken place during the time frame of the call, it's unclear if the callers were ever identified. It was the first tip of any kind for this family's disappearance. Since the investigation began, the RCMP have conducted hundreds of interviews, obtained thousands of documents related to the case, and have searched several properties in search of Ronald, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan. The most recent search for the Jack family took place in 2019 at a property south of Vanderhoof on the Sac Ouse First Nation Reserve. Ground, penetrating radar, and heavy equipment were used. No trace of the Jack family was ever found. What a wild story for Canada. I hope I can put these pieces together for everyone in the best way possible. Are any of the Jack family members still alive? 
<sighs> I don't feel like any of them are alive, even the kids. I see that they all passed on. I also feel like they were for sure set up. I feel like Russell and maybe a buddy of his were really tight on funds and they were talking about it out loud. I even feel like he had at one point been at a local grocery store and this man had also been in earshot of him then too. So I think this guy was kind of creeping him and watching him and his family. I then feel like at the bar when he came up to him basically offering him a better paying job for his wife and take care of the kids and basically giving him that level of comfortability that he was looking for telling him that his wife could do cooking and cleaning for people. And I feel like he was very excited. So he just wanted to get on this, you know, this particular plan and make it happen. So he contacted his wife right away to get everything started. But they were really struggling to make money and honestly felt pretty desperate. This guy was like a, a blessing in disguise for them. So they basically made up this cottage job to lure them there. Was there any personal reasoning behind it? I don't feel like it was anything other than a race-related issue. I feel like this man had also killed a few others as well, but never took an entire family before or after, for that matter. I think it was too much for him after that. I don't even believe he had planned to kill them all, but from the sounds of it, the parents made him mad, and he killed them too. These are honestly very horrible images coming up. I know it's hard. Let's start off easy. What happened leading up to their disappearance? When the family left for their road trip, there was a plan to take them to the cottage, but it wasn't to work. I feel like they did go to a cottage, and sadly enough, I feel like the Jack family was in the cottage at some point, and the police searched the area, and I feel like the police were even in such a close proximity to their bodies back then, and in 2019, not so much anyways. But anyways, Ronnie is the other leading the conversation here, and at the moment, he had the most involvement with this guy. Now, he shows me that his wife did not like his vibe at all, and she was worried that this was all a hoax, and she was so scared of their finances, she decided to take a leap of faith with him. I mean, not like they had much time to go anyway. He convinced his wife that not only was it just an option, that they would be making money, they won't ever have to pay for the housing and childcare while they were there anyway. And he said that this guy did talk details in large sums of money. And he said this man had it all set up. And they went over all the details and his lies were consistent. He shows me that this man was named Johnny. But I don't feel like he gave him his real name. I feel like his real name was George or something close to that. He had to build some trust with him to lure him there. That's really sad. What happened next? He said that he did have one night in the cottage. Apparently, they were running behind when it came to leaving, so he said that they were packed and trying to get organized, but the kids always stopped that from happening easily, and he shows me the kids are screaming and playing, and of course the kids were happy, but he shows me that his kids were his world, and he always made sure to do Superman with them, and they loved it. That was them at their most happiest. He shares those moments with me. So sweet, actually. He's a good dad for sure. So it's sad. He blames himself for all of this. 
Anyways, I see them getting to the cottage, but it was not what they expected at all. His wife shows me it was a mess, and there was only two beds, and the beds were dirty and gross, and the cottage was trashed and smelly piss stains everywhere. She shows me she wanted to leave, but she was also trying to be polite, so she just started to clean things and make a list of items she needed to get or clean up. Plus, she also wanted to get herself another mattress. She shows me she had a few relatives she could talk to nearby to help with supplies. She even asked if she could have a phone, and he informed her that the phones were down conveniently. They would be waiting a few days until the phones were back up and working. Do they show a location? Both mom and dad show me it wasn't near any other location. It was off-grid. It looked like it was man-made. The walls were thin. The upstairs was low. It was basically made for basic living. I even see the bathroom isn't a real bathroom. It wasn't even big enough to house all four of them. But from the sounds of it, this George guy was also staying too. She shows me it was very odd. She wasn't aware he was planning to stay there as well. The original property isn't there anymore. She shows me that something else is there. But I will save that part for the end. Yikes. Yeah, sounds like a very odd thing to happen, especially since this wasn't indicated initially. You are right. This wasn't part of the plan. She now shows me that he expected her to cook and clean up after him. He kept on calling her darling and making her get him food and drinks all night. And from the sounds of it, she did it to be polite. But I feel like she spoke to Ronnie about it and Ronnie agreed this wasn't how it was supposed to be. He shows me he decided to talk to George about it, but he wanted to wait till the next day. I'm not sure of the time frame, but from the sounds of it, George was offended and got very mad and said, hey, I'm only trying to help you here. And this is the thanks I get kind of conversation. Ronnie was a very gentle man and he didn't really want to get upset and get confrontational. And I feel like he tried to calm this George guy down a bit. And then George did, in fact, calm down. He shows me he was carrying on a few hours and I'm not sure exactly what the men and the oldest son were doing outside, but perhaps they were getting the wood. But that makes sense because that was supposed to be part of the job description. And I feel like the oldest son wasn't listening to this man's direction. And I feel like he was kind of rough and the kids weren't really used to this aggressive manner. And from the sounds of it, just pushed his boundaries and wasn't listening to the man at all, which in my opinion, and from the way he was screaming his head off at the kid, I wouldn't have listened to him either. Why the fuck would he yell at someone else's kids? Exactly. I see that Ronnie was getting visibly upset about it too. He shows me that he was bawling his fists, but again, he's not very confrontational. So he sent his son in to help his mother with dinner preparations or maybe lunch. I'm not too sure. But from what he shows me, he decided to talk to this man and have like a one-on-one -on -one conversation, basically saying, this is his kids. Don't do that kind of thing. Don't talk to them that way. And that his wife isn't going to be taking care of his needs in any way anymore. And uh, that George guy really got mad and hit Ronnie in the back of the head since he couldn't face him. And then he started to stab him repeatedly. Ronnie did fight back and I do see Ronnie wasn't a small man either and he did have some strength but from what I can see the other man some other guy came out of nowhere and shot Ronnie in the head with a single shotgun bullet. Ronnie heard the gun go off and then gone. He said it was slow motion. He said he knew he was going to die. The gun was so loud and echoed into the sky and the birds shifted he said. Who was the second man? 
I believe he's George's brother. I'm not too certain from the sounds of it. Maybe something stepbrother related. Anyways, I keep hearing Tom, Tim, Tiny, Timmy, something. I'm unsure of this one. This man appears to be more crusty looking. He has a very distinctive mole on his face. He has front teeth missing and I'm pretty sure he didn't bathe much and he was a big smoker too. So Ronnie died at this point. Sadly, yeah. He had already died at this point and I don't think he would want to be around for the parts that take place with his kids because this is going to be the part that makes me most uncomfortable. A lot of people don't realize the things Liz can see and it really is scary at times and when she sees these things, they haunt her for a while. So when people say, I wish I had your gift, you got to make sure you have the right type of mind for it. Liz doesn't do well with blood guts, or even broken bones, and ironically, dead bodies. So Liz is constantly facing her fears every single day. Yes, I do. Thank you for pointing that out. It is true. It's not easy. Well, from the looks of it, these two men returned to the cottage where Doreen was making dinner, and I believe the kids were playing. Doreen asked, of course, where Ronnie was, and I believe he had said he would be coming soon. I don't believe they heard the gunshot. From what Doreen shows me, they were really mean to her. They beat her, raped her in front of her children, sodomized the oldest child, suffocated the youngest boy. He let the mom watch her kids get killed, and then they raped her a few more times and killed her and then raped her again after she was already dead. <sighs> I feel like the two of them took the bodies and buried them deep underground, around the home. I feel like it's even deeper than the normal six feet, maybe nine feet. I see that they dug three holes and I see they put the boys together and mom and dad alone in their own holes. I feel like the new house that currently is occupied by someone else has no ideas that these four bodies are on their property. Wow, that was a lot of information and so much suffering that this family had to endure. When the police got that call, was it from George or from this Tim or Tom guy? It really was. Uh, I feel like it was George. And he did it because it's his, it was his older life. He was dying and he didn't get caught. And this was his way of telling people that the bodies were out there. But he didn't want to give them too much detail. So yeah, they buried them in that area. And it's under like a cottage. And it's a very nice cottage. And it's been paved over. But all four bodies are there. Has George died? And also, will there ever be justice for the Jack family? Both of them have died which is why I can get their names a little bit more. But there will be never any sort of genuine justice for them. I believe the bodies will be discovered. I'm not sure exactly how, but I see myself and I don't know if it means I will help with this. So who knows? But I think that will be pretty cool. <laughs> we do plan to go to BC at some point. Thank you for all that information. Now, before we go, Liz also wanted to mention an update or two. Ben and Jen got married, as Liz predicted. Britney Spears has a TV show coming out on Hulu or something along those lines. We highly recommend listening to episode four, the Rory Hache uh, episode. There is a little bit of an update on this case. Liz is going to share with us now. I have actually had this information for a few weeks now, but I haven't had the chance to talk about it until now. Now, with the last episode, I'm not going to get into it too much, but the murder of Rory Hache and Candace Fitzpatrick were both victims of this man in Oshawa, Ontario. Well, I had indicated in the last episode that there were others and they would find more evidence indicating so. 
Well, recently, the home where Adam Strong lived, the home was basically occupied with Adam Strong as a tenant and also an upstairs tenant. And recently, items were found within the home and they're not sharing the details as of yet. I believe they will share them once they get everything and they're going to be basically decomposed body parts, other murder weapons, perhaps even a bomb of some sorts made again as a home device but all these items were placed within the foundation of the home hidden in the walls more names will be dropped of people missing in the area that were never found and it will be announced at some point later on this year or even maybe next year early on adam will also get more convictions connected to this i didn't feel that part coming but i am so glad to hear this and we'll keep you all posted when I hear anything else about this case. Next month, we'll be covering four new episodes where a haunted house will be a main suspect. Until next week, guys, stay freaked out.